Blog Talk Radio. which is the sole project of the Revolutionary War Veterans Association. All right, the the music that you're hearing now, the music for the intro, is uh, by Poker Face. And uh, one of the reasons that I'm using it is uh, I enjoy their music, and we uh, we need some music that we have uh, uh, right to use. And listen, uh, I'm willing to, if uh, some of you guys want to record some music, <clears throat> there are a lot of talented folks uh, among the ranks of our Appleseed members. If some of you guys want to uh, record some music or write a song, write the uh, the official Appleseed song and uh, record it and send it to me, 
I'll be glad to uh, use it for some intro if you want to do read some poetry or uh, something like that. Do a uh, a short uh, 30, 60 second intro. Uh, I'd be more than glad to listen to it and then uh, uh, consider using it for the intro music for the radio show. The problem with using uh, other music is, uh, although I'm sure it probably will never happen, but it's if for some reason somebody got upset about me uh, using some of the stuff without uh, paying for it, then uh, then that might be a problem. So if you guys, if anybody listening has uh, the ability to record some music, and it doesn't have to be a perfect uh, uh, recording studio's uh, cut of music, if you want to uh, to whip out some music on your guitar and record it and send it to me, then uh, I would love to have that. I'd love to use that uh, something from our own folks to introduce the radio show. All right, as I said earlier, the Appleseed Project is a sole project of the Revolutionary War Veterans Association. And the Revolutionary War Veterans Association is dedicated to bringing uh, Americans the absolute best fundamentals of rifle marksmanship program in the United States today. The absolute best. Nobody uh, does it like we do it. And uh, we've become uh, experts at teaching folks the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship. And, uh, of course, when I say fundamentals, you know that I'm talking about the skills and techniques that you're going to need, no matter uh, no matter what reason you're shooting. If you're shooting uh, in competition, uh, if you're shooting at tin cans, it doesn't matter. The fundamentals are the fundamentals. You'll need to know these skills and techniques in order to take you anywhere you're going to go on your rifle marksmanship path. We become absolutely uh, uh, the best program in the United States today to uh, for you to learn the fundamentals, to teach you the fundamentals. And we get folks at every uh, every weekend of the year somewhere uh, across the United States uh, within reasonable driving distance of you as an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship event. And you can come to this event <clears throat> without ever having fired a rifle in your life, all right? You can stop at uh, Walmart or Academy on the way, pick up a 10.22, a uh, uh, bulk box, 550 rounds of a 22 long rifle, uh, a couple of extra magazines, some air protection, eye protection, and uh, and a frozen uh, one-gallon jug of water, and you're ready to go. We'll teach you the rest. <clears throat> we'll teach you everything you need to know to put you on the path to becoming a rifleman. I'm not going to tell you that you're going to uh, shoot to rifleman standards your first weekend, although I will tell you this. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. I've seen people show up <clears throat> over and over again who've never handled a rifle uh, in their lives. As a matter of fact, I'll help them get it out of their box uh, from the back of their car where they just stopped at Walmart or Academy or or wherever, get the, get the rifle out, uh clean it off, get it set up, uh, and by the end of the weekend, uh, they were uh, shooting at uh, a 212, 214, 221. So it can happen. Normally it doesn't, but regardless, we will give you in the weekend, we'll give you all the skills and techniques you'll need, the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship to set you on your path to becoming a rifleman. And... uh, the 
shooting for rifleman standards and uh, and being a rifleman uh, are not always the same thing. All right, they uh, they can be, but they're not always the same thing. Uh, you can you can shoot to rifleman standards. You can shoot uh, two ten or above on the AQT and not be a rifleman. Or you can shoot uh, at 190 and not shoot to rifleman standards and still be a rifleman. Shooting to 200 and above on the AQT, the Army Qualification Test, all that does is get you the patch. All right, the rest of it's up to you. As far as what a rifleman is, a, a rifleman, and I've got it right there on the show page, a rifleman never stops learning. A rifleman never stops teaching. A rifleman continues to seek ways to protect the freedom the Founding Fathers left us, to improve himself, his home, his family, his community, his state, his country, every day of his life. A rifleman adapts, a rifleman overcomes, and a rifleman persists. This is not just some fancy, gilded rhetoric we throw around like popcorn and pennies. This is the code that we live by, and there's nothing wrong. No matter how often the mass of the talking heads tell you it's wrong or outdated or corny or stupid or cavemanish with having a code to live by in your life. Modern Americans have forgotten their code. They've forgotten how to be Americans. And uh, what we would like to do at Appleseed is to help them remember. All right. How are we going to get them to uh, to know this? How are we going, how are we going to, to introduce this to them? How are we going to introduce the ideas of... How are we going to show them the skills and techniques uh, so that they can master the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship? First, they have to come to a rifle marksmanship uh, event. An apple seed week, and uh, in order for them to get to an apple seed rifle marksmanship weekend, they're going to have to know when and where they are. And the best way for folks to to know that, aside from you just telling them, aside from you just uh, making sure that uh, everybody that you talk to knows that there's one coming up uh, in two weeks, it's going to be at location X Y Z, and I want you to come. Of course, that's the best way. Uh, the next best way is for them to go to rwva.org and uh, go to their home page there <clears throat> and uh, on the home page, there is a list i mean there's a uh, series of tabs across the the top of the page. The second one from the left says Apple Seed. You put your cursor on that, you'll get a drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, select Schedule. That'll take you to a page that uh, has a map of the United States on it, and then put your cursor on the state in which you wish to attend an event. Click on that, and that'll give you a listing of the locations and dates. If you want to see the events as they are occurring across the United States altogether, there's a hot link embedded in the text above the map. You click on that, and that will take you to the page I'm going to read from here in just a second. And uh, it will give you a listing of all the events 
occurring across the nation. Now, when you look at those uh, those locations, you'll see them listed in uh, uh, it'll, it's listed by the city that it's in alphabetically, listed in the city that it's in, and then list the state and then the day and the month. All right, and it goes uh, <coughs> it's listed down <coughs> by date. Then once you have uh, once you found a location there where you wish, where you'd like to attend. There's two other hot links just to the right of that, all right? We'd like you to pay attention to those two hot links because the, the first hot link says information. Now, it'll give you the information about that specific location on that specific date. It'll tell you how to get there, uh, who to contact, uh, any other pertinent information for that specific location and that specific date. The next link says register. And we'd like you to uh, click on that when you're ready to go and pre-register. That'll take you to our third-party registration software, which is the Eventbrite system. And uh, if you'll click on that, then you'll get uh, taken to the uh, the Eventbrite registration page, and then you can pre-register there. Pre-registering is a great idea. Uh, because it will ensure that you have a place on the line. And uh, and I'm not going to tell you that you can't do a walk-on, because uh, in a lot of cases you can. But what I will tell you is that I sure wouldn't count on that. I mean, if you're going to go to this event, uh, don't just uh, think about going or don't just talk about going. Let's go ahead and let's get it uh Let's get it carved in stone. Let's get pre-registered so that you know for a fact that you've got a place whenever you show up. The last thing you want to do is drive a couple hundred miles to a location, jump out of your vehicle and uh, come up there and say, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do this thing and uh, and have them tell you that the event is sold out. All right, And there are sold out events every weekend. So make sure that you pre-register because it also helps Appleseed. The way that we know how to send... Uh, the right amount of instructors and gear, etc., is by looking at the pre-registration numbers. And uh, that way we know how many instructors to send so that we have a good instructor-student ratio, how much, uh, uh, how many supplies need to be sent to that location, etc. And that lets us know. That's how we can gauge it. So please pre-register, and uh, <clears throat> uh, you will also save money. If you pre-register for the event, uh, in most cases, and I'll get to the prices in just a second. In most cases, it'll be about uh, it'll be seventy dollars for most folks if you pre-register. If you wait and you pay when you walk on, it's going to be eighty dollars. So you can save yourself ten bucks right there. Uh, if you go for one day, it is forty-five dollars. If you pre-register, it's fifty. If you don't listen, while I'm on the one-day thing here too, we we have we usually have uh, several one-day events across the nation on different locations. Uh, and we have that set up so that it's uh, pretty smooth and pretty much covers everything uh, in a good fashion for one day. But for those of you considering going to uh, just one day of a two-day event, uh, I'd like you to consider uh, going on Saturday. All right, The events run Saturday and Sunday. And Saturday is the day that we introduce all of the skills and techniques. And uh, we layer them one on top of the other, and then you shoot it. And then we give you another layer, and then you shoot it. And you keep adding and keep adding until hopefully you've got it all stacked up nice and neat. And then usually by the end of the day, Saturday, we start uh, running you through the diagnostic 
portions of it, and that's having you shoot the Army Qualification Test, the AQT, so we can get a kind of a uh, get some feedback on how you are accepting the uh, instruction. On Sunday, you'll get uh, kind of a refresher of the skills and techniques, and then you'll start. Uh, you'll go into what we call the AQT grind. So <clears throat> it's to your benefit if you can only go on one day to go on Saturday. All right, that's where you're going to get the skills and techniques layered, and then on Sunday, it's you're going to get a refresher. And uh, and then you're going to start putting it all together and uh, making it work for you and your style. <clears throat> so try and make it on Saturday, all right? Uh, and now for the prizes. Uh, we've got the uh, – let me make sure that I'm, I'm giving you exact up-to-date information. I'm going to open another window here. Uh, because Appleseed is an all-volunteer, it's a grassroots uh, uh, all-volunteer nonprofit organization. Now we have to make enough money in order to keep our doors open, but we're not trying to make a profit. It's uh, uh, and, and don't worry, we're we're doing a good job at not making a profit. Uh, we're doing enough to keep the doors open and uh, and uh, and pay all the bills. But the whole idea of the Apathy Project is not to make money, it's to make riflemen. All right, so we've got a lot of free categories. And uh, the free categories are as follows. Active duty, guard, and reserve are free, as are peace officers. Uh, for most of the other folks, 70 bucks. that's for the two full days of instruction, and uh, including all the... Uh, the targets, uh, the other supplies, a T-shirt, etc. Forty-five bucks for a single day. And like I said, both of these are for pre-registered costs. Women are ten dollars, and uh, kids are five dollars. So, uh, and and I tell folks, and I'd like for the shoot bosses to. Uh, it's up to the shoot boss's discretion. But like I said, the whole idea is for us to make riflemen, not uh, make cash. So uh, I'll tell you what I do. If uh, if somebody is strapped for cash and uh, they want to come and shoot, but they're strapped for cash, then uh, then I'm going to wave them in. I'm going to let them come in and shoot. And... Uh, and maybe it's just a temporary thing, and they'll have cash, and they can, uh, uh, you know, they can pay at a subsequent event and get their rock card. We'll talk about the rock card in a second. Get their rock card, and uh, and they'll work their way up to an instructor. Uh, maybe they don't have, uh, maybe they're no good at uh, at making cash or something like that, and so they come, and maybe they're never going to make enough money to uh, to even pay their way to any subsequent events, uh, and so they would never really be that great as an instructor. You know what? I, I don't care. Uh, my job is to spread the message, all right? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spread the message. My job is not to uh, produce a profit for the organization. My job is to spread the message. So that's what I'm going to do. And... Uh, and if it means I'm going to wave some people in uh, on a case-by-case basis at the discretion of the shoot boss, then that's what 
I'm going to do. And that's what I advise the shoot bosses to do. And uh, we know that our most successful method of promotion is word of mouth. So even if you let uh, a person in free and they went out and they told two other people and then those people came and they paid, there's all your money back. Uh, and if they don't, you were having an apple seed anyway, weren't you? And so they just uh, went through it, and uh, it's not like you had to buy them a car or anything. You just They just went through the apple seed, all right? <clears throat> so that's my opinion on that. Uh, now let's get to the ROC card, the Rifleman's Opportunity card. If you come to an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship event, you pay to uh, come to an event, and uh, you don't shoot to rifleman standards on that day, but yet you think you say to yourself, you know what, I'm going to keep coming until I make rifleman. I'm going to keep coming until I shoot to rifleman standards because uh, it's important to me. I set myself a goal of improving my rifle marksmanship. Then I set myself a goal of uh, shooting to rifleman standards. <clears throat> and by cracky, I'm going to shoot until I make it, all right? We want you to do that. We want you to come back. We don't want you to have to pay 70 bucks every time. <clears throat> so if you're not in one of the free categories, then what we'd like you to do is take your receipt for your paid attendance that weekend. And then you can also purchase, uh, usually right there on the ground, you can purchase a membership a uh, membership in RWVA, $20 a year. You take the uh, the receipt for your paid attendance along with your receipt for your uh, membership in RWVA, and you show it to the shoe boss, and he'll fix a stamp to your, uh, to your membership card that shows that you are now enrolled in the Rifleman's uh, Opportunity Card Program. That means that you can keep coming back until you shoot to rifleman standards or for one year from the date that you entered the uh, ROC program. And uh, like I said before, I'm not going to tell you that you're going to shoot to rifleman standards in the uh, first weekend that you attend. But my gosh, if, you're, if you come once a month for 12 months, uh, I would think that you would shoot to, to rifleman standards well before the uh, third or fourth month. But It'll be good for a whole year or until you shoot to rifleman standards, which is what you were trying to do anyway, right? You're trying to shoot to rifleman standards so you can start your journey on the path of becoming a rifleman. We want to help you do that. So make sure that if you, uh, if that's what's on your mind, then you take your uh, paid receipt for the weekend. You take your receipt for uh, enrollment uh, as a member of the Appleseed, uh, as the RWVA member. And take it to the shoot boss, and uh, tell them that you want to be in, uh, you want to be in the uh, enrolled in the rifleman's opportunity card program, and uh, get that done. <clears throat> now you can also <clears throat> you can enroll whenever you uh, pre-register for an event. You can uh, you can get your RWVA membership at the same time, so you'll have both things on the receipt. And, uh, and that way you'll be ready to go. And you know, even if you if you do this, even if you don't shoot, even if you do shoot rifleman standards, it's not going to hurt you, right? I mean, you're going to be uh, you're going to be a member of RWVA, 
and you'll have a paid weekend uh, on you, and uh, and you'll just be helping out the program. All right, so like I said, uh, with that information in hand, you want to find out where the events are going to be. Uh, are going to be go to rwva.org. That's our homepage. On the homepage, look at the top for the tabs. On the second tab from the left, you'll see Apple Seed. Put your cursor on that. You'll get a drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, select uh, Schedules. On the Schedule page, either click on the state where you wish to attend an event or click on the hot link in the text above to get a listing of all the states across, of all the events across the United States. And then take a look there and find an event uh, that you would like to attend because we know that uh, uh, that there is an event within reasonable driving distance from you uh, every weekend, somewhere in the United States, every weekend of the year. And I'll give you a quick reading of where that starts out for the July 1st and 2nd. We have Ackley, Iowa. That's on a Friday and Saturday, the 1st and 2nd. Uh, in Rolla, North Dakota, we have a known distance day, and that's July 1st, which is Friday. Uh, Castle Rock, Washington, starts the regular weekend off, which is the 2nd and 3rd, followed by Colebrook, Connecticut, which is a one-day, Saturday, July 2nd, followed by the uh, the regular weekend event in Dundee, Michigan, Miamisburg, Ohio, Ossian, Indiana, Rolla, North Dakota. And uh, just like I told you earlier, we have Rolla, North Dakota, and uh, Friday is the known distance day, and then Saturday and Sunday it's a regular event. <clears throat> All right, that same weekend, we have Santa Barbara, California. Rama, Colorado is a one-day event on July 4th. That's Monday. That takes us to the weekend of the 9th and 10th. That starts out in Ashland, Wisconsin, followed by Curling, Idaho, Dunbar, Wisconsin, Eureka, Kansas, Great Falls, Montana, Mariposa, California, Mayaka, Florida, Nashville, Indiana, Ottawa is July 9th. It's a two-weekend event, July 9th and the 23rd, Ottawa, Illinois. That same weekend of the 19th is Piru, California, Ramsar, North Carolina, Rising Fawn, Georgia, Salem, Ohio, Troop, New York. I'll be shoot-bossing that one in Troop, New York, getting to uh, the uh, chance to see uh, as many of my, as many of the New York Appleseed folks as possible. Uh, Lebanon, Connecticut is Sunday, July 10th, one-day event. Albuquerque, New Mexico starts off the uh, next weekend, the July 16th and 17th weekend, followed by Alton, Illinois, Augusta, Georgia, Bonfield, Illinois, Buckingham, Virginia, Byers, Colorado, Enfield, New Hampshire, Evansville, Indiana, Fountain, Colorado, Hinckley, Minnesota, Hubertus, Wisconsin, Layden, Massachusetts, Mannheim, Pennsylvania, Mayhill, New Mexico, New Bremen, New York, Pequot, Ohio, Proctor, Vermont, Rosebud, Missouri, Sacramento, California, Salem, West Virginia, San Angelo, Texas, Springfield, Oregon, Wooster, Ohio, Harvard, Massachusetts, 
And uh, that takes us to Bowler, Wisconsin, which is showing a Tuesday and Wednesday event, July 19th and 20th. All right. Uh, the next weekend is the 23rd and 24th, and that begins in Cloverdale, Indiana, followed by Coarse Gold, California, Colfax, Wisconsin, Corona, California, Crittenden, Kentucky is a one-day event, Saturday, July 23rd, for previous attendees only. That means if you've attended an Appleseed event uh, sometime before then, <clears throat> then uh, this event, this one-day event, is going to be open to you. Uh, Davila, Texas, on the 23rd and 24th, as is Gibsonburg, Ohio. Glen Helen, California, Grand Island, Nebraska. Gunnison, Colorado. Hutchinson, Kansas, Lake George, New York, Lewiston, Idaho, Lodi, Wisconsin, Montrose, Iowa, Mayaka City, Florida, New Martinsville, West Virginia, New Philadelphia, Ohio, the second weekend of the two-weekend event in Ottawa, Illinois, Pittsburgh, Kansas, Riley, Indiana, Sherburn, Louisiana. Make sure that you check the Sherburn, Louisiana location uh, before committing to that on the 23rd and 24th. Listen, if anybody, if, if any of the folks from Louisiana are listening, please call me and let me know about that because uh, the last that I heard, Steve McPeak uh, said that the Sherburn Range, I'm almost positive he said the Sherburn Range at uh, one point recently was under about 25 feet of water. So uh, be sure and... Uh, and check that, get in contact with the contact person there uh, before committing to that date, uh, July 23rd and 24th. All right, that same weekend, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. And here we go. Ready? Chugiak, Alaska. Chugiak, Alaska, July 28th and 29th is a military-only shoot. Chugiak, Alaska. Bob 210 uh, has set up a, a multi-day event. <clears throat> this is the beginning of it. The uh, military event is the 28th and 29th, and uh, <clears throat> that is the uh, Thursday and Friday. That's the two days before the regular event. There will be a Chugiak, Alaska, uh, 30th and 31st event open to the public. I'll get to that in just a minute. <clears throat> But uh, that is the military only. So if you're in the military there in Alaska and you'd like to come to an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship event and no charge, that's your chance, July 28th and 29th. And we sure hope that a lot of folks do come and show up because this is something we'd like to get uh, started on a regular basis there. Now, I know that the civilian part uh, is, already, uh, uh, is already up and running. And it's going to be a great shoot with a lot of folks. But we'd like to get the the military involved also, so that we can continue to do shoots uh, for the uh, American military stationed there in Alaska. All right, the weekend of the 31st in Audubon, uh, Pennsylvania, Bellevue, Michigan, Brunel, Bunnell, Florida, Calverton, New York, Charlotte, North Carolina, Chugiak, Alaska. Colebrook, Connecticut, Columbia, Maine, 
Dulzura, California, Edgewood, New Mexico, Guilford, Connecticut, Hernando County, Florida, Knob Creek, Kentucky, Manchester, Tennessee, Medical Lake, Washington, Napanee, Indiana, Palmerton, Pennsylvania, Puryear, Tennessee, Rama, Colorado, San Luis Obispo, California, Wilmington, Ohio, and Winterset, Iowa. That is the month of July. <clears throat> so, so we would like uh, we'd like for you guys to make sure that you take a look at the uh, at the schedule, and uh, for you guys that are going to instruct, get yourself on the schedule as soon as possible, and for you folks that are attending. Like I said, don't just think about attending an event. Get uh, the day set and then lock it in stone. I don't know how most state coordinators or uh, shoot bosses do it, but for me, if somebody wants to, uh, here in Texas, if somebody wants to attend an event and they uh, pre-register for an event, Something comes up or something happens and they can't attend that event. They give me a uh, an email or a call or whatever, and uh, then I'll just switch them to whenever they want to attend an event. That means they've already paid for this event that they're going to come to, and I just tell them to select a date that works for them. Then I'll contact that shoe boss and let them know that uh, the person is being transferred to them for that week and they've already paid. All right, so that can be listed on the uh, the shoe boss form that the person came and uh, there was uh, no monies paid because they had already paid at the previous uh, registration date. So all you have to do is make sure that that uh, you got the paperwork down. But if somebody wants to come to an event, if you want to attend an event, go ahead and get yourself pre-registered. If something happens, just let us know. We'll switch you to another event. Uh, we'll slide the registration over to wherever you'd like to go. Uh, so don't worry about, uh, about pre-registering and having something happen and, uh, and it being a uh, a chore to get it moved or something, just go ahead and pre-register for the event you would like to attend. If something does come up, let the shoot boss know. If you get if you, if you're a member uh, or if you're a person who has done this, and for some reason you're getting uh, it, somebody's giving you trouble about it, contact me and I'll smooth out the troubles because. Uh, because I'm telling you to do it, so uh, if something goes wrong, then I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that it gets fixed. All right. Uh, tonight's show is, uh, let me make sure I've got this, uh, is Itium Capillus Unus Habet Umbram. That's, uh, the Latin for every single hair has a shadow. That means, uh, uh, you know, you've got uh, you've got a full head of hair, thousands and thousands and thousands of hairs, and uh, you know, some fall out, some get pulled out, uh, some get cut, uh, on and on. And you got a whole full of hair. It's hard to distinguish one from the other, right? But every single hair has a shadow. And uh, what that means is that even the smallest things sometimes have uh, larger uh, consequences 
than you would think. Sometimes even the smallest things have larger consequences than uh, you would imagine. And it can be good and it can be bad. Uh, For me, you know, sitting at the feed store waiting on a a load of feed to be delivered and uh, thumbing through shotgun news and happening to read the ad that Fred put in there, uh, you know, it seems like a very small thing. Some guy's reading uh, a an ad in a magazine about uh, a bunch of Revolutionary War guys, and at first thinking that they're uh, that they're all prancing around in tights and stuff like that, but but finally getting it through his thick head and understanding what's going on, and deciding to send an email and one thing leads to another and and now I'm part of a program that I feel is doing great things in our nation and it wasn't because somebody uh somebody came looking for me or I was some uh important person that somebody set their sights on and said we got to get him in the program uh, I was a nobody. I mean, nobody knew me from anybody else, and certainly nobody would have would have tried to seek me out. And yet, over the last few years, I've worked really hard to push the program. All right, but I'm no different than anybody else. But that's my point: is that <clears throat> you never know where the next person is going to come from that is going to devote. Uh, a lot of time, energy, and effort into pushing the program forward. You never know. And uh, it could be the person who's on the other side of the gas pump from you when you're filling your tank. And you're and in your head you're having this dialogue saying, oh, should I, should I say anything? Because I'm, I got, uh, the, the tank's half full now. And, uh, you know, and i got to go pick up the kids. And uh, you know, I'm not really, I don't really want to, I don't really want to start a conversation with somebody I don't know, you know. And maybe you do and maybe you don't. One of the things that's going to make it easier is making sure that you have a elevator speech ready. That's a, a 30 to 60 second spiel that you can give real quickly on who who we are and what we do and then hand them a – make sure you got the, a couple of dozen uh, business cards in your wallet and just – Hand them a business card. Even if you don't want to put your name on the business card, you can just put. Uh, you can just have some business cards printed up that say Appleseed Project, which is probably an idea that that what we should do is uh, is have uh, you know fifty thousand or a hundred thousand of those printed up and just send them out with the shoot boxes, and it just has the homepage for Appleseed and stuff on there. And then the person handing it out can decide either to or not to put his contact information on there, or you can put your state's Appleseed website, you can write it on there, et cetera, and just hand it to the person. Uh, even if it's just a little thing like saying, hey, listen, <clears throat> I don't know if you have any interest in uh, rifle marksmanship or not, but if you do, here is a uh, an all-volunteer nonprofit organization that would be more than glad to help you uh, improve your rifle marksmanship. And the, the website's on there. So thanks, and uh, hand it to them, and that's it. <clears throat> and uh, either they will or they won't. But I can tell you, they certainly won't if they don't know how to get to it. Uh, if somebody doesn't know that Appleseed exists, 
I guarantee you they're not going to say, well, let me get on Google and let me do a search for uh, an organization that uh, that doesn't even exist. Let me just uh, follow this name at Appleseed. Let's see. If there was a rifle marksmanship organization, uh, it, it would might be called Appleseed. I'll look for it and I'll find one. All right? It's not going to happen. You know that. They need to have a they breadcrumbs in order to find their way to us. They need to have a trail. And that's what that business card that you're handing them is going to be. It's going to be a trail. <clears throat> we've got uh, leaflets. We've got everything else. But a lot of times <clears throat> you don't have uh, leaflets in your hand. And uh, you can have uh, a dozen business cards in your wallet. They'll fit in there real easily. And uh, you can... Uh, you can hand one of those to people and uh, and point them in the direction of the trail because you don't know if that person on the other side of the gas pump from you is going to be the next great uh, state coordinator for uh, uh, for Wyoming or North Dakota or California, etc. You don't know if they're the person that you've been looking for uh, since the program started. You don't know that. Every hair casts a shadow. You don't know if that's going to happen or not. And the other side of the story is this. <clears throat> if, uh, if you are filling your car up and, uh, and you're all dirty and uh, scrubby and you haven't shaved for a couple of weeks and... Uh, and you got a beer in one hand, and you're pumping gas, and you turn around to them, and you go, "Hey, how about coming to an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship event?" <clears throat> then uh, you've probably effectively cut that person off from attending. And I'm not saying that within any of our people do that because they don't. Our people are really great, but I'm just making a uh, I'm just making a point real quick, and that is that your actions, your uh, the way you handle yourself, the way you uh, uh, the way you look, the way you dress, etc., uh, all reflect on the program. If you're going to talk to somebody about the program, uh, if you're wearing an apple seed shirt, then I would expect you. If you're wearing your uh, apple seed shirt and your uh, instructor's hat, then I would expect you wouldn't be in a bar drinking. If you're wearing your apple seed shirt and your instructor's hat, and somebody cuts you off, then I would hope that you're not going to. Uh, scream out the window at them and and give them some kind of hand gestures. All right? Everything that you do has some type of an effect somewhere. Maybe it's bigger, maybe small, but you never know what the consequences of your actions are going to be down the road. You just, there's no way of knowing for sure. You can uh, can speculate, but there's no way of knowing for sure. So you want to try and do a couple of things. One, uh, always carry yourself, uh, when you're representing the program, always carry yourself to the best of your abilities. Make sure that you cast uh, nothing uh, but uh, goodwill and pride on the organization. And then never lose a chance to talk to somebody about it. Listen, I've been doing this for years. I've been talking to folks about it for years. And I've gotten almost every kind of reaction uh, you can imagine. Uh from doing uh, interviews on the radio and on television and uh, 
cold calling people, talking to people in the streets, emailing, etc. And uh, uh, believe me, uh, I've gotten <laughs> I've gotten every kind of uh, uh, response you can imagine, and many of them uh, are responses that I can't relate to you here because they're uh, hateful and vulgar. Uh, which is always surprises me, but uh, but that's that's the truth of it. But those are not uh, those are not the usual responses. The usual responses, uh, whenever you've done it politely and professionally, is that people are interested. And yeah, they may just shine you on. Oh yeah, like oh man, yeah, you know, I'm like, I'll be, I'd love to do that. Or they may give you the response of. <clears throat> Uh, let's see, one of my favorite ones was uh, uh, my son's a sniper in the Marine Corps, so I don't need to go to your program. <clears throat> so you, you may get some of those. Well, wh- how does that hurt you? How do any of those uh, any of those things hurt you? If you invite somebody to come to the program, they say, yeah, yeah you know what, no thanks. I'm, I don't like guns. I don't like people that shoot guns. Uh, I don't like people that look like you. Or talk like you, or anything else. And you just you smile at them, and you say, "Well, thanks for the thanks for giving me the time to talk to you about it." And uh, and you move on to the next person. Because I can tell you also that along your route, you're going to get people who are going to come to the events, and uh, and then the story will be uh, down the road a bit, uh, but uh, the story will be. Yeah, you know, I never even heard about this program until uh, uh, until Hawkhaven, uh, who I didn't even know who he was. And he was gassing up his car one day. I was gassing up my car, and he turned around and uh, and handed me an apple seed uh, business card and started talking to me about rifle marksmanship. Marksmanship, and you know, I'd never even shot a rifle before. Never even thought about it before. And uh, and then he gave me that card and. I don't know something clicked, and and I decided that uh, you know I wanted to learn how to shoot, and so I did, and uh, and now I'm a shoot boss, and uh, you know the rest is history. <clears throat> but you know what? That whole story uh, dissolves and disappears without the injection of the uh, the 30 seconds it took for Hawkhaven to to around him the business card. All right, the rest of that. Uh, the rest of it exists in an alternate universe where nothing happened, <clears throat> and the guy goes on to uh, to eventually vote uh, for uh, for confiscation of all firearms because he had nothing invested in it. He'd never shot before in his life. He didn't know anything about shooting, and so what is it? What did it mean to him? You know, it was all. Uh, uh, he didn't have any dog in that hunt. <clears throat> That's one of the reasons it's so important to get to the youth uh, today because uh, when I was growing up, uh, everyone I knew, uh, all the kids I knew, uh, all hunted, fished, all they all shot, even all the girls. All the girls shot. Uh, it wasn't, uh, and it wasn't, uh, everybody shot. All the girls, all the kids shot everybody. And uh, now, and I live rurally now. I live still out in the woods now. None of the kids are being taught, that are growing up now, are being taught 
how to uh, handle a rifle, how to shoot. Uh, not just the girls aren't being taught, none of the guys are. Nobody's being taught to shoot. And the problem with that is is that at some point in the next uh, uh, 10, 11, 12 years, they're going to reach the age of 18 where they can vote. And when some kind of a bill or something comes up there where people vote to either have or, or, or not have firearms, then what do they care? They've never shot. They don't know anything about it. What do they care? They didn't. Uh, they didn't continue in the American with the American tradition, the American heritage of shooting. So they could care less whether people can own firearms or not. And uh, we've got to make sure that the trend is reversed. That we're getting as many of our young people as we can, and we're getting them uh, introduced to rifle marksmanship and. Uh, and teaching them how to safely and correctly handle firearms and how to become marksmen. Not because shooting is a key to life, but because shooting, becoming a rifleman, uh, the idea, the theory behind becoming a rifleman uh, puts you on the path uh, to understanding your life, to becoming a good person. When <clears throat> when you're first introduced to the Appleseed uh, Rifle Marksmanship Program, especially as an instructor. The first thing you think is that this program is dedicated to teaching folks how to shoot, because that's what we do, right? That's what we do. Every weekend of the year across the United States, within a reasonable driving distance to you, there is the absolute best fundamentals of rifle marksmanship program in the United States uh, running over the course of the weekend, the two-day weekend. <clears throat> so naturally, uh, as you're getting into the program, you'd say, well, that's what, they, that's what we do. We teach people to shoot, and we do it better than anybody else uh, in this nation. You stay with the program a little longer, and what you'll realize is that Really, it's not about the shooting. Really, it's about American heritage, about history, about the men and women who stood together uh, on April 19, 1775, on that day, and then for eight long, bloody years afterwards. And then not just there, but on an unbroken path from that date till today, our people uh, who have... Uh, safeguarded the freedoms and liberties of this nation. So then you start to realize, well, it's about, uh, it's really about history. This program is really about history. Now, you stay with the program even longer, and you'll finally realize another thing. You'll say, you know what? <clears throat> the program isn't really about, uh, it's not really about shooting, not at its core, and, and it's really not even about history. What it's really about is helping me to understand how I can be the best person that I can be. How I can figure out how to be the best possible person I can be for myself and then for my family, for my community, for my 
state, for my nation, how I can do the the best I can as as a person, as an individual, as a citizen of the United States, and and how I can continue to remember and honor the founders, and at the same time uh, to help bring forward their ideas how I can continue to safeguard the freedoms and liberties that living in this nation affords me and my family, my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, and all of those who will come after me. That's what you'll finally realize. And that's a good thing. All right. Uh, If you'd like to call in, We'd love to have your calls. Uh, Remember, one of the things that we want to do during the program is to make sure that we uh, we give folks a pat on the back. Where do they deserve it? If you got somebody who uh, has gotten their rifleman's patch, they've shot uh, to rifleman standards, and uh, you want to give them a congratulations. If there's somebody who just passed their uh, PC one, two, three, four, if they become a full instructor or a shoot boss. They ran their first shoot, uh, then you can call in. If you've got somebody who's just been working uh, uh, tirelessly in your state uh, as far as uh, administratively, then call in. Let everybody else in the program know that uh, that they're doing a great job because that's one of the things that we like to do here. And you can call in by uh, calling 347-308-8790, and uh, the call screener will... Take your information and uh, let me know uh, what you want to say, and then I'll get you on there to say it. And also, if you have uh, some kind of a uh, uh, some kind of a commercial enterprise, and you want to uh, you want to get the information out to the rest of the folks uh, uh, tonight, then uh, we'd be glad to have you do that too. And uh, let's see, along those lines. Let me uh, introduce a couple of folks to you. We have uh, Blue Feather in New Mexico, who is just one heck of a uh, handmade soap maker. And uh, I wish I was going out to New Mexico uh, sometime soon so I could try and talk her out of a few more bars uh, of that soap because uh, I'm not really a fancy fancy, uh, soap man, or at least I didn't think I was. Uh, I like uh, the plain white, uh, uh, regular uh, ivory soap, stuff like that. But listen, she made some great soaps. She makes a great custom uh, shaving soap. Uh, She just makes some great soap. So uh, make sure that you, uh, if you want some handmade soap, go to uh, Blue Feather. Google Blue Feather Soap, uh, New Mexico, and uh, you will get her get her site. Let me see if there we go. The uh, call screen to put it in here. Uh, Bluefeather.bizhosting.com. All right, that's uh, that's the site for her. And remember, every time you buy a bar of soap from Blue Feather, then uh, you've helped uh, make sure that she's got uh, gas to. Uh, to get to another event, 
and uh, continue on with her her instruction. And uh, there's also the folks that uh, that provided the uh, bump music for their radio show. They were a guest a couple of weeks ago, Pokerface. You'll find them at pokerface.com. Uh, you'll have uh, Beth Schoenberg's uh, new radio venture. You guys remember Beth Schoenberg. She's a great friend to Appleseed. And uh, she uh, was uh, the one of the co-hosts with uh, Derry Brownfield for the Derry Brownfield Show. Mr. Brownfield passed away, and Beth has gone out on her own, and she's setting up uh, her own uh, radio station, her own radio show. And uh, you can find them at commonsensecoalitiontalkradio.com. commonsensecoalitiontalkradio.com. Dot com, and uh, and listen to her show. When, uh, like I said, she's been a friend to Appleseed Radio since the very beginning, and uh, and we want to be be a friend to them. We've got some other Appleseed instructors that uh, uh, that have other uh, programs that you can listen to. Uh, Aaron and some of his buddies here in Texas have a uh, Urban Survival. Uh, site where they talk about uh, survival and it's more uh, from the slant of if you're living in the city and you're going to try and figure out how to get past uh, some of the problems that may happen to you in the city then you can go to intherabbithole.com n-i-n-t-h-e-r-a-b-b-i-t-h-o-l-e dot com intherabbithole.com and they'll put out a a weekly newsletter and uh, they've got a radio show that they're doing and uh matter of fact I'm gonna be on their uh their podcast this this week. Uh so uh go to in the rabbit hole dot com and you can find out the information uh there from them. Uh Mr. Call Screener, am I missing anybody? I don't think that I am. There's another uh, uh and remember once again that if you guys if any of you guys have uh, something you'd like to get out on the air then we'd be glad to do that. Uh, just send me a, an email at rangescout at hughes.net or uh, PM me on the forum, and I'll be glad to get the information out to you. <clears throat> All right, and uh, and if you want to call in to give anybody any thanks or to plug something that you're doing uh, or to uh, talk about an upcoming shoot or give a uh, after action on one that you just had, you can call us at 347-308-8790, and we'll be glad to get you on the air. I'll make sure that I'm paying, trying to pay attention to uh, the switchboard and to the chat room while I'm talking. <clears throat> All right, uh, what I'd like to do now is, you know, for the last uh, month or so, we've been talking about, uh, I've been reading to you guys from a book, <clears throat> and it is... Uh, the Spirit of 76, and uh, edited by Henry Steele Commager and Richard B. Morris, put out by Castle Books. And uh, this is the story of the American Revolution as told by its participants. And, uh, you know, I've been reading this to you for the last uh, month or more, you know, different sections out of it, because uh, I think this is a very important way for you to... Uh, uh, to understand what was going on then, because 
you can read a lot of the uh, a lot of the overall histories of the American Revolutionary War, and uh, it gives you a lot of good insight into it. <clears throat> but it doesn't tell you what the people uh, who were involved in it, what they were experiencing, and what they were thinking, how it looked to them, uh, what they were, uh, the hardships that they were going through, etc. This does. This gives a an actual out of the horse's mouth account of uh, of what these folks were going through during the American Revolutionary War, and it's it's very interesting. And the book is, uh, like I said, the book's a great book. Uh, it's about uh, 1,200 pages of letters, uh, diary uh, or journal uh, notes, and uh, and from both sides, uh, from the uh, from the British side, notes and letters from the British, and notes and letters from the uh, uh, from the American colonists, and uh, and it gives a lot of insight into why they did what they did, what they were thinking when they did it, uh, what was really going on in a certain city or a state or a province uh, during the American Revolutionary War. As I said, in most people's uh, in most people's minds. When they think about the American Revolutionary War, uh, they see the the movie clips, uh, like from The Patriot. You know, they see the guys in blue on one side and the red coats on the other, and the drum and fifes and uh, the flags waving, the cannons uh, blasting, etc. And that that did happen, but that wasn't the majority of the conflict. Uh, the conflict was. A long, bloody conflict, and uh, filled with a lot of uh, partisan warfare. And then, uh, folks also think of uh, of the war occurring mainly in New England, and uh, uh, and mainly in uh, uh, Maine and uh, uh, Massachusetts. I mean, not Maine, Massachusetts, and. Uh, uh, and the New England states right there. There was a, a great deal of the war was fought in New York, in New Jersey. Uh, and then a lot of folks don't even realize that uh, as an equal portion of the war, and some folks will even tell you that the, the war was actually fought and won in the South, uh, in uh, the uh, the second part of the war. And... Uh, uh, and there's a tremendous amount of information in this book about that. And uh, one of the things I wanted to read to you was, uh, well, I was going to save this. Uh, I'll save that for the next time we talk about it. One of the things I wanted to read, and I'll save it, is the uh, was the effect that privateering had on the uh, on the Continental Navy. Uh, because I thought it was very interesting how, uh, you know, you have uh, unintended consequences and what happens when you think something, when you think you're going to do something that's going to work and it actually causes you more grief. And that was one of the things that uh, occurred with privateering. Uh, <clears throat> I'll save that because I've got a lot of stuff in that, that I'd like to get out real quick about the South, about the uh, uh, the partisan warfare. Like I said, you've got... Uh, 
you've got the the idea on folks' heads of the blue fighting their red, and then you know it being done in a very formal fashion with uh, the guys lined up, uh, you know, a stone's throw from each other, and standing there shooting, and uh, you know, and quietly waiting, uh, you know, patiently waiting to be shot one side or the other, and uh, then spreading out to fill in the ranks once a cannonball has come through and uh, you know and stripped out uh, two or three ranks of guys, and then you know, doing side steps to fill in the ranks. But that's not the how the majority of the war was fought. The majority of the war was fought uh, in a partisan fashion, and that's uh, with the between the loyalists and the rebels. Uh, and then it was fought by men not in uniform, and it was fought uh, it, a great deal of times by folks uh, who knew each other, who were cousins or uh, sometimes brothers or fathers and sons, uh, and. Uh, it was ugly and uh, and very very uh, uh, very very unsettling. So then that's how a great deal of the war was fought. Uh, and uh, call screener, I've got. I'm, I'm going to keep clicking back on the page. If you'll just make sure that uh, there you go, you already got it. All right. If you guys want to call in, I'll keep clicking back onto the uh, the call in onto the. Uh, uh, they've got this it used to be a switchboard and now they've upgraded it uh, with my new package to a studio uh, so it looks like a looks like a regular studio the the page that I'm looking at but uh, if you when you call in talk to the call screener and he'll put on there what you want to say or if you want to talk or if you just want to listen etc and I'll keep uh, checking that and if you of course if you want to ask a question Instead of calling in, if you want to ask it on the uh, uh, in the chat page, you're welcome to do that also. And uh, I encourage you folks either listening or uh, on chat. If you've gotten yourself a uh, uh, an account at uh, Block Talk Radio, that you uh, uh, I guess you can still be if you can friend the show or follow the show. Uh, if you'll do that, that uh, works. Uh, that does help us with promotions, with promoting the show, the number of followers we get, etc. All right, enough of that. We're going to go straight to the uh, the second campaign uh, to conquer the South. You know, they came in the uh, they came into the South to conquer the South. They got driven out, then uh, they came back in again, and we're going to start off with the uh, the max massacre. At the Waxhaws, you know, after the fall of Charleston, uh, the British were trying to extinguish the flame of uh, insurrection all through the uh, the state. And uh, once they had found out that there was a, a force of 300 men from Virginia coming in, who were under the command of uh, Colonel Buford, uh, and that he had reversed his course toward Charleston on news of the capitulation and he'd retired towards Hillsboro and then temporarily halted the group near the Waxhaw Creek and uh, this was about nine miles from the Lancaster Courthouse Cornwallis then sent a mixed force of dragoons but mainly these were men from the uh, the Loyal Legion under Tarleton you guys all know Tarleton he was the character uh, the evil character in the Patriot and uh, he was his 
his group of dragoons were called the Legion. Now, he also had what he called the Loyal Legion, and these were loyalists uh, who were under his command. Uh, if you remember the one guy that, uh, I wish I could remember his name, uh, Baldwin. He's not one of the Baldwin brothers, He's, uh, but his name is Baldwin, and he's actually a very staunch uh, conservative. And uh, he was playing one of the loyalists. And uh, that is, this is the group that Charlton had winning. They, they were detached to intercept Buford and his guys uh, by Cornwallis. Uh, then he, uh, uh, once Charlton had gotten close uh, to Buford's group, he sent uh, an emissary uh, asking the Americans to surrender, and he was kind of exaggerating the numbers of his guys. And uh, he wrote, if you're rash enough to reject the terms, the, bud, the blood be upon your head. Buford wrote back to him, I reject your proposals and shall defend myself to the last extremity. And uh, this literary exchange between the two, between Tarleton and Buford, uh, proved to be quite prophetic. Now, while there was only 300 yards separating the forces, Tarleton could hear the American officers shouting to their men to hold their fire until the dragoons were within ten paces. Ten paces. Uh, I don't know if this was because they were afraid of the uh, of poor marksmanship or what, but uh, there are gonna, there are several battles uh, where this proved fatal to the defenders, to the uh, um, the American colonists, to the colonial forces. They waited until the horses got close. Now, uh, this wasn't any good because once they're once they're in among you, you don't have time to do anything. You know, what they were doing, uh, I believe, uh, on a couple of their retreats, was once they got to within uh, 70 or 80 yards, you know, they'd fire a volley. All the horses would bolt and people would fall off and they would – They'd have to stop and regroup and get their guys back on the horses or get lined back up. As they were doing that, uh, the, the uh, infantrymen were reloading. So they could keep doing that uh, over and over. But once they let them get too close, once they got in among them, then it was too late. <clears throat> uh, Tarleton had his dragoons and uh, attacked Buford and the Americans. Uh, because once they were once they were on top of them, even though they were a smaller force, once they were on top of them, uh, the Americans uh, they felt that they were overwhelmed, and they asked for quarter, and they ran up the white flag. Now, Tarleton uh, supposedly said that he was shot at during the negotiations. Now, this is unsubstantiated; nobody shot at him, but he said this so that he could then call out his dragoons, call out to his men, to begin executing the soldiers who had surrendered. And uh, they carried out a massacre for which the, the sheer, sheer savagery was unmatched in, in the entire war. There was, this was one of the worst massacres. It was actually the worst massacre of the entire war. Um, some, of the, some of the stuff that happened at the Battle of Oriskany and a couple of others where, the, where events were similar, but this was the absolute worst uh, massacre, and uh, it was because of this battle that the battle cry of Tarleton's Quarter was begun. Tarleton's Quarter, that means, of course, no quarter. If uh, When the Americans called out Tarleton's Quarter, 
That means they were going to fight. They were going to kill anybody and everybody. It didn't matter if you surrendered or not. They were going to kill you. And uh, and that was part of the repercussions of this. All right, so uh, let me read you <clears throat> uh, the letter from Dr. Robert Brownsfield to William D. James. Uh, <clears throat> In a short time, Throttle's bugle was heard, and a furious attack was made on the rear guard commanded by Lieutenant Pearson. Not a man escaped. Poor Pearson was inhumanely mangled on the face as he lay on his back. His nose and lip were bisected obliquely. Several of his teeth were broken out in the upper jaw, and the under was completely divided on each side. These wounds were inflicted after he had fallen, with several others on his head, shoulders, and arms. As a tribute to the honor and Job-like patience of poor Pearson, it ought to be mentioned that he lay for five weeks without uttering a single groan. His nourishment, his only nourishment, was milk drawn from a bottle through a quill. During that period, he was totally deprived of speech, nor could he articulate distinctly after his wounds were healed. This attack gave Buford the first confirmation of Tarleton's declaration by his flag. Unfortunately, he was then compelled to prepare for action on ground where it presented no impediment to the full action of cavalry. Tarleton, having arranged his infantry in the center of his cavalry on the wings and advanced to the charge with horrid yells of infuriated demons, they were received with firmness and completely checked until the cavalry were gaining the rear. Buford, now perceiving that further resistance was hopeless, ordered a flag to be hosted and their arms to be grounded, expecting the usual treatment sanctioned by civilized warfare. This, however, made no part of Tarleton's creed. His ostensible pretext for the relentless barbarity that ensued was that his horse was killed under him just as the flag was raised. He affected to believe that this was done afterwards and imputed it to treachery on the part of Buford, but in reality... A safe opportunity was presented to gratify that thirst for blood which marked his character in every conjuncture that was promised probable impunity to himself. Ensign Cruitt, who advanced the flag, was instantly cut down. Viewing this as an earnest of what they were to expect, a resumption of their arms was attempted to sell their lives as dearly as possible, but before this was fully effected, Tarleton with his cruel minions, was in the midst of them. When commenced a sense of indiscriminate carnage, never surpassed by the ruthless atrocities of the most barbarous savages. The demand for quarters, seldom refused to a vanquished foe, was at once found to be in vain. Not a man was spared. And it was the concurrent testimony of all the survivors that for 15 minutes, after every man was prostate, they went over the ground, plunging their bayonets into everyone that exhibited any sign of life, and that in some instances, where several had fallen one over the other, these monsters were seen to throw off on the point of the bayonet the uppermost to come at those beneath. Captain Carter, who commanded the artillery and who led the van, continued his march without bringing his guns into action. This conduct excited suspicions unfavorable the character of Carter, and these were strengthened 
by his being paroled on the ground and his whole company without insult or injury being made prisoners of war. Whether he was count whether he was called to account for his conduct, I have never learned. These accepted, the only survivors of this tragic scene were Captains Stoke, Lawson, and Horde, Lieutenants Pearson and Jameson, and Ensign Cruitt. Uh, Ensign Cruitt. All right, now, he was it said earlier in the, the letter he was instantly cut down. He must have survived. Early in the sanguinary conflict, he was attacked by a dragoon who aimed many, many deadly blows at his head, all of which, by the dexterous use of the small sword, he easily parried. When another one on the right, by one stroke, cut off his right hand through the metacarpal bones. He was then assailed by both and instinctively attempted to defend his neck and his head with his left arm until the forefingers were cut off and the arm hacked in eight or ten places from the wrist to the shoulder. His head was then laid open almost the whole length of the crown to the eyebrows. After he fell, he received several cuts on the face and shoulders. A, a soldier passing on in the work of death, asked if he expected quarters. Stokes answered, I have not, nor do I mean to ask quarters. Finish me as soon as possible. He then transfixed him twice with his bayonet. Another asked the same question and received the same answer, and he also thrust his bayonet twice through his body. Stokes had his eye fixed on a wounded British officer sitting at some distance. When the sergeant came up who addressed him with apparent humanity and offered him protection from further injury at the risk of his life. All I asked, said Stokes, is to be laid by that officer that I might die in his presence. While performing this generous office, the humane sergeant was twice obliged to lay him down and stand over him to defend him against the fury of his comrades. Dr. Stapleton, Tarleton's surgeon, was then dressing the wounds of the officer. Stokes, who lay bleeding in every pore, asked him to do something for his wounds, which he scornfully and inhumanely refused until preemptorily ordered by the more humane officer, and even then only filled the wounds with rough tow, the particles of which could not be separated from the brain for several days. Shortly after the adoption of the Constitution of the United States, he, Stokes, was promoted to the bench in the federal court, married Miss Pearson, and settled on the Yadkin River, where the county is called Stokes after his name. So, so there you go. Uh, he was, he had his hand cut off. Then his fingers cut off, on the other hand, because he put his, uh, obviously, uh, he, they said he had a small sword. He reached up to defend himself uh, and held up his right hand to try and ward off a blow, and it got cut off. Uh, then he held up his left hand to ward off blows to his head and neck, and that had the fingers cut off. Uh, then, I suppose, not being able to hold his sword, because without a hand in one hand, and there were no fingers in the other, he was simply holding his arms off to ward off the sword blows, and they said that he was chopped from wrist to shoulder. Uh, then he falls, and he has his 
uh, his head and face chopped open. Uh, another soldier comes up and says, do you want quarters? And he says, uh, you know, he asked him if he expected quarters or if he was going to ask for quarters. And he says, I have not asked for quarters, nor do I mean to ask for quarters. Finish me as soon as possible. That soldier stabs him twice with a bayonet, sticks it all the way through him. All right? Another soldier comes up and asks him the same thing. Because as you remember, as I read earlier, <clears throat> this isn't happening in the heat of battle. These guys have all surrendered, uh, and then they've been attacked, and they're starting to execute all of them after they surrendered. Uh, now, first they try and, and, and try and get back to their arms, but it's too late. They're all being executed, <clears throat> and this isn't happening in the, in the roar and rush of combat. This is a methodical thing. They're going from person to person and stabbing them. And he's getting to this guy, and he's, he's already been, his hands and fingers have been chopped off. His arms have been chopped off. His head has been chopped open. Uh, the soldier comes up to him and asks him if he wants quarters, and he says, I'm not asking for anything. Finish me off. The guy runs his bayonet through him twice. So he's laying there then. Now, another one, another guy comes up. I guess he still sees him moving, and he says the same thing. Are you looking for quarters? No, not a chance. Go ahead, finish me off. That guy runs him through several times. And another guy... Uh, another guy sees him, and uh, they said this guy was uh, apparently had some humanity left in him, and uh, and was trying to protect him from any further injury, and uh, and then I tried to get the doctor to fix him off. The doctor wasn't going to do anything, and then finally they said, I guess he put some uh, some type of a something to stop the bleeding, uh, but but. Other than that, nothing. And and then this guy lives, lives and becomes uh, uh, a federal judge. Wow. Can you imagine that? I mean, uh, most of us have heard the story of uh, uh, of uh, uh, I hate this when it happens. My, the the name is escaping me. Uh, I do it at every Appleseed event. I talk about it. Uh, not Whittemore. Uh, 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 anyway, uh, you guys know the story. Uh, he, he's been shot uh, several times, bayoneted, uh, on and on. And uh, uh, and he was in his uh, late 70s when this happened. And he lived another 20 years. Uh, same thing for this guy. Uh, if you can imagine this, uh, being having your right hand chopped off, having your fingers on your left hand chopped off, having the rest of your, your arms chopped off, falling dead, ha- having your head chopped open, uh, and then having the guys coming by, like I said, not in a rush, just, uh, hey, what's up? You need some quarters? No. All right, well, hold on, I'm going to stab you a couple of times. And then having uh, another guy show up, hey, listen, you're still breathing. Uh, do you want some quarters? No. All right, I'm going to stab you a couple times, too. And the guys are just uh, walking back and forth doing this, and they're executing all of these men, all of Buford's men. And uh, that is how a great deal of the American Revolution was fought. Now, that was a worse massacre, but that's how a great deal of the Revolution was fought. The uh, There wasn't a lot of... Uh, uh, of honorable, gentlemanly fighting. 
there were murders and rapes and robberies and houses were burned down and neighbors killed neighbors. Absolutely horrifying and ugly. Okay, Scuzzy told me, Hezekiah Wyman. All right, obviously uh, uh, I'm getting older because if, just because you tell a story about a person uh, two or three hundred times and you remember, doesn't mean you're going to remember his name. <clears throat> Hezekiah Wyman. All right, everybody knows the story of him. All right, there were a lot of people who went through that. <clears throat> All right, now the South uh, went seesawed and went back and forth. And uh, during the second invasion, the second battle for the South, <clears throat> that was one of the uh, one of the first and one of the the worst battles uh, in the beginning. That meant that South Carolina was now firmly in the British hands. Clinton, who had been working there, uh, he assumed his work was done, and he actually left and went back to New York and left the rest of the Southern campaign uh, in the hands of Cornwallis. And uh, we're going to move on now to the events <clears throat> of uh, in North Carolina. <clears throat> South Carolina was taken, and uh, North Carolina... Uh, was being fought over. Now, although the partisan bands, now that the South was, I mean, the South Carolina was firmly in the hands of the, the British, it didn't mean that the partisan bands weren't still active because they were, <clears throat> and uh, they were to render Cornwallis's position in South Carolina insecure the whole time he was there. Now. He felt that his his hold, his control of the province, was strong enough to justify a campaign into North Carolina uh, once the hot weather was over. Because you got to remember too that the guys, the British regulars, were not used to American weather in the South. Uh, it was abs to them. It was absolutely horrendous, and. Uh, you need to remember, too, that these guys, you're talking about guys who were in thick, rough wool uniforms, rough wool uh, leggings and pants, and uh, then a thick, rough wool jacket. And this is all in the South, in summertime, in the heat. And uh, it got to such a point that they didn't even want to fight during the heat of the South, it's not like they were. They said, "You know what? Here's what let's do. Let's uh, let us change our uniforms and let's wear some just some uh, loose linen, and that's what we'll fight in." No, they said, uh, uh, "Okay, uh, with the wool uniforms, we can't fight during the heat." <clears throat> anyway, uh, Cornwallis thought that the heat had abated enough that he could push into North Carolina, and he also felt that his hold on South Carolina was. Uh, secure enough that he could leave. Now, that was not a good idea because once he left, the partisan bands uh, began to work even harder. But he pushed into North Carolina, and uh, but there was a problem. Uh, one of the Tories, one of the loyalists, John Moore, he'd gotten together about 1,300 Tories, and had uh, they were camped near Ramsar's Mill in Lincoln County, North Carolina. <clears throat> and Ramsar's Mill is actually not too far from Ramsar, uh, the uh, the home range of the Appleseed Program, Ramsar, North Carolina. 
and uh, John Mill was in camp there with about 1,300 Tories, 1,300 loyalists. And uh, Colonel Locke, who was a commander uh, of uh, part of the North Carolina militia, he arrived uh, at daybreak around the June 20th. And he, he came to within about a mile of the enemy. Now, the Tory camp was thrown into disorder by a forward unit of the Whig horsemen. Some of the Tories stood their ground, and they fired down the hill and pursued the retreating horsemen, only to fall into the trap that had been set up for them by the infantry. And he sent the horses in, and uh, they kind of got the uh, attention of uh, uh, Locke's men, and they were fired on, and then the horses took off running, and they went after them, kind of like, uh, you remember the scene in uh, Band of uh, Brothers? No, it wasn't Band of Brothers, in Saving Private Ryan. Uh, you know, when they sent uh, Ribbon on the, the rabbit to try and draw the uh, the Germans down the road they wanted him to go on. Okay, the same thing was used here. He sent the horses in. They got fired at, and they took off. And then the uh, the Loyalist troops ran after them, but there had already been an ambush set up by the Whig infantry, by the Patriots, <clears throat> and they fired on them. Now, the as soon as they did... Uh, another unit began to engage the right flank of the Tories and uh, forced them back toward the summit of the hill and pushed them over the top. And they hemmed in between the two fires. Uh, they had to pull out in small parties. Uh, the remarkable thing about Ramsar's Mill is that the the partisans did not act as a unit. And every time this happened, it was it was trouble. The officers made decisions, and instead of having an overall commander, they were all uh, kind of like independently working, and uh, uh, this didn't work good. Still, though, the battle proved to be a crushing loss of face for the Tories in that section of the state. And this event happened, the battle happened before Cornwallis could get there with his troops. So instead of waiting and coming together as a uh, uh, as an organized singular unit, uh, Locke and his group of Tories kind of jumped the gun and started the, the battles here in North Carolina, and they actually got whipped. All right, and this is from uh, uh, General Joseph Graham of North Carolina, and this is actually written down in his notes uh, when he decided to write them down in 1820. The Tories were encamped on a hill 300 yards east of Ramsar's Mill and a half mile north of the present flourishing, flourishing village of Lincoln Town. The ridge stretched nearly to the east of the south side of the mill pond, and the road leading to the Tuskegee Ford by the mill crossed the point of the ridge in a northwestern direction. The Tories occupied an excellent position on the summit of the ridge. They're right on the road fronting the south. The ridge has a very gentle slope and was then interspersed with only a few trees, and the fire of the Tories had full rake in front for more than 200 yards. The foot of the hill was bounded by a glade, the side of which was covered with bushes. The road passed the western end of the glade at right angles, opposite the center of the line, and on the road, a fence extended from the glade to a point opposite the right of the line. The picket guard, 12 in number, were stationed on the road 250 yards south of the glade and 600 yards from the encampment. All right? <clears throat> so that gives you kind of an overall picture of how they were set up. The companies of Captain Falls, McDowell, and Brandon being mounted, the other uh, 
Whig troops under Colonel Locke were arranged in the road, too deep behind them, and without any other organizational orders, they were marched to battle. When the horsemen came within sight of the picket, they plainly perceived that their approach had not been anticipated. The pickets fired and fled toward the camp. The horsemen pursued, and turning to the right of the road, they rode up to within 30 steps of the line and fired at the Tories, who, being in confusion, had not completely formed their line, but seeing only a few men assailing them, they quickly recovered from their panic and poured in a destructive fire, which obliged the horsemen to retreat. They retreated in disorder, passing through the infantry who were advancing. Several of the infantry joined them and never came into act, uh, to, uh, action. At a convenient distance, the greater part of the horsemen rallied, and returning to the fight, exerted themselves with spirit during its continuance. The infantry hurried to keep near the horsemen in pursuit of the picket, and their movements being very irregular, their files were opened up six or eight steps, and when the front approached the Tories, the rear was 80 poles back. Now, this isn't a good idea. If your ranks were spread that far apart uh, uh, as far as your ranks, right and left, and then uh, from front to rear being that great a distance, that's too spread out. Uh, for the type of fighting they were doing then. The Tories, seeing the effect of their fire, came down the hill a little distance and were in fair view. The infantry of the Whigs kept the road to the point between the glade and the corner of the fence, opposite the center of the Tories. Here the action was renewed. The front fired several times before the rear came up. The Tories, being on their left, they deployed to the right in front of the glade and came into action without order or system. In some places they were crowded together in each other's way, and in other places... There were none to be seen. As their rear came up, they occupied those places, and the line gradually extending, the action became general and obstinate on both sides. In a few minutes, the Tories began to retire to their position on top of the ridge, and soon fell back a little behind the ridge to shelter part of their bodies from the fire of the Whigs, who were fairly exposed, exposed to their fire. In this situation, their fire became very destructive so that the Whigs fell back to the bushes near the glade, and the Tories, leaving their safe position, pursued them halfway down the ridge. At this moment, Captain Hardin led a party of Whigs into the field and under cover of the fence kept up a galling fire on the right flank of the Tories, and some of the Whigs, discovering that the ground on the right was more favorable to protect them from the fire of the Tories, obliqued in that direction, toward the east end of the glade. This movement gave their line the proper extension. They continued to oblique until they turned the left flank of the Tories, and the contest, being well maintained in the center, the Tories began to retreat up the ridge. They found part of their position occupied by the Whigs. In that quarter, the action became close, and the parties mixed together in two instances, and having no bayonets, they struck at each other with the butts of their guns. In this strange contest, several of the Tories were taken prisoners, and others, divesting themselves of their mark of distinction, which was a twig of green pine stuck, top stuck in their hats, intermixed with the wigs, and all being in their common dress, they escaped unnoticed. <clears throat> all right, what they're talking about is, because these folks weren't in uniform, they had to have to figure out some way of uh, making sure that each other, that they knew who was who. And the way they did this sometimes was they would, one guy's, one group would put uh, uh, a clip of 
pine twigs in the the top of their hat. So they're wearing a sprig of green in the top of their hat. Sometimes people would wear an armband. But uh, obviously at this point, these guys pop the... uh, they popped them their marks of distinction, their twigs out, and they mixed in with the wigs and uh, were able to get away. The Tories, finding the left of their position in possession of the wigs and the center being closely pressed, retreated down the ridge towards the mill, exposed to the fire of the center and of Captain Harden's company behind the fences. The wigs pursued until they got entire possession of the ridge when they perceived to their astonishment that the Tories had collected in force on the other side of the creek beyond the mill. They expected the fight would be renewed and attempted to form a line, but only 86 men could be paraded. Some had scattered during the action. Others were attending to their wounded friends, and after repeated efforts, not more than 110 could be collected. In this perilous situation of things, it was resolved that Major Wilson and Captain William Alexander of Rowan should hasten to General Rutherford and urge him to press forward to their assistance. Rutherford had marched early in the morning and at a distance of six or seven miles from Ramsar's was met by Wilson and Alexander. Major Davies' cavalry was started at full gallop, and Colonel Davidson's infantry were ordered to hasten on with all possible speed. At the end of two miles, they were met by others from the battle, who informed that the Tories had retreated. The march was continued, and the troops arrived on the ground two hours after the battle had closed. The dead and most of the wounded were still lying where they had fallen. As soon as the action began, those of the Tories who had no arms and several who had retreated across the creek. They were joined by others when they were first beaten back up the ridge, and by 200 that were well armed who had arrived two days before from Lower Creek in Burke County under Captains Whitston and Murray. Colonel Moore and Major Welch soon joined him, and those of the Tories who continued the fight to the last crossed the creek and joined them as soon as the Whigs got possession of the ridge. Believing they were completely beaten, they formed a stratagem to secure their retreat. About the time that Wilson and Alexander <clears throat> were dispatched to General Rutherford, they sent in a flag under a pretense of proposing a suspension of hostilities to make arrangements for taking care of the wounded and burying the dead. To prevent the flag officer from perceiving their small number, Major James Rutherford and another officer were ordered to meet him a short distance from the line. The proposition being made, Major Rutherford demanded that the Tories should surrender as prisoners within 10 minutes, and then the arrangements should be made that they were requesting. In the meantime, Moore and Welsh gave orders that such of their men as were on foot or had inferior horses should move off singly as fast as they could. And when the flag returned, not more than 50 returned. They immediately fled. Moore, with 30 men, reached the British Army at Camden when he was threatened with a trial by court-martial for disobedience of orders. In attempting to embody the Royalist before the time appointed by the Commander-in-Chief, he was treated by, with disrespect by the British officers and held in a state of disagreeable suspense, but it, it was at length deemed impolitic to order him before a court-martial. <clears throat> okay, so what happened here is they attacked too soon, and even though they were only being attacked by a smaller party, the uh, 1,400 men were put to rout, and 
they were even forced to, under a flag of truce, when they were just supposed to be asking for a suspension of hostilities, while the flag was being sent, they scampered off and, uh, and tried to make good their escape. All right, uh, one more battle that I want to read to you about, and this is a uh, this is a fairly important one. It's called the Battle of Kings Mountain. <clears throat> uh, having routed Gates and scander, scattered Sumter's forces, Cornwallis moved from Camden on September 8, 1780, pressing a full-scale invasion into North Carolina. Three parallel forces moved northward. Cornwallis with the main body of his armor, Charlton at the head of the British Legion and light infantry. And still farther westward, Major Ferguson and his Tory command, Colonel Davy at the head of such fragments of American troops as he could command, fell back. And then on the night of September 3rd, 20th, he surprised the hated British Legion at the plantation of one of his own officers, Captain Wahab, near Charlotte. He inflicted severe casualties on them and retired with his booty. Knowing that Wahab was with the attackers, the enemy burned the plantation to the ground as soon as Davies' forces retired. If Gates found his route to Camden infested with hostile Tories, the score was evened when Cornwallis made Charlotte, North Carolina, his temporary headquarters. The area was a stronghold of diehard patriot resistance under Davy. The Patriots put up a brilliant defense. The British finally took Charlotte with substantial losses in an affair where the British Legion scarcely covered itself with glory. Cornwallis found that the communication with Camden was difficult to maintain and that the foraging parties ran into crack-shot guerrilla forces that played havoc with morale. So Cornwallis couldn't keep his, uh, his uh, avenues of communication with Camden because the messengers uh, were being uh, taken prisoner or killed, and the forage parties that were sent out to gain uh, food and supplies, they were being attacked, and they were being picked off and killed. <clears throat> Major Ferguson Tories were assigned to move along the foothills and cover Cornwallis' left flank. At the suggestion of Colonel Isaac Shelby, measures were taken for cooperative action by the partisan leaders to cut off Ferguson's forces. Accordingly, Forces under Colonel Charles McDowell, John Sevier, Isaac Shelby, and William Campbell assembled at uh, Watauga on September 25th and were joined by Colonel Benjamin Cleveland. Learning of the approach of the forces, <clears throat> uh, let me, here we go. Learning of the approach uh, of the forces, Ferguson first sought to retreat to the Catawba. Then he was forced to take a stand on Kings Mountain, a mile and a half, a mile and, uh, and a half south of the North Carolina boundary. Uh, all right, so he is forced. Uh, Ferguson and his group were forced to make a stand on Kings Mountain. <clears throat> well, part of this uh, is because he had sent a letter uh, across the uh, across the mountains. Uh, to the men of that area, and said that they better uh, surrender immediately uh, or he's going to come over there and capture and kill every one of them. And uh, uh, I believe at the time, these a lot of these folks uh, weren't even 
weren't even that active uh, in the battle. Uh, as a matter of fact, the the note that uh, Ferguson sent was uh, was I believe taken to uh, to a horse race that they were having and read aloud there, and uh, and that caused those men uh, to gear up for the attack on Ferguson. All right. Uh, let's see. Shelby of North Carolina. In September 1780, Major Ferguson, who was one of the best and most enterprising of the British officers in America, had succeeded in raising a large body of Tories, uh, who was with his own corps of regulars, constituted an effective force of 1,125 men, with a view of cutting off Colonel Clark of Georgia, who had recently made a demonstration against Augusta, which was then in the hands of the British. Ferguson had marched near the Blue Ridge and had taken post at Gilbert Town, which is situated but a few miles from the mountains. Whilst there, he discharged a patriot who had been taken prisoner on his parole and directed him to tell Colonel Shelby, who had become obnoxious to the British and Tories from the affair at Musgrove's Mill, that if Shelby did not surrender, that he, Ferguson, would come over the mountains and put him to death and burn his whole county. Well, there you go. It required no further taunt to rouse the patriotic indignation of Colonel Shelby. He determined to make an effort to raise a force in connection with other officers which should surprise and defeat Ferguson. With this object in view, he went to a horse race near where Jonesboro had since been built to see Servier and others. Shelby and Servier were then resolved that if Colonel Campbell would join them, they would raise all the force they could and attack Ferguson. And if this was not practical, they would cooperate with any corps of the Army of the United States with which they might meet. If they failed and the country was overrun and subdued by the British, they would then take water and go down to the Spaniards in Louisiana. Colonel Campbell was notified of the determination and a place of rendezvous in the mountains appointed east of Jernsboro. Uh, at the time appointed, September 25th, Campbell joined them. Their forces outnumbered about uh, numbered about 1,000 riflemen. They crossed the mountains on the 27th uh, in a ravine and fell in accidentally with Colonel Cleveland of North Carolina, who had under his command about 400 men. The force, having been raised by officers of equal rank and with being without any higher officer entitled to command the whole corps, there was a general want of organization and arrangement. It was then determined that a board of officers should convene each night and decide on the plan of operations for the next day. And further, that one of the officers should see those orders executed as officer of the day until they should otherwise conclude. Shelby proposed that Colonel Campbell should act as officer of the day. Campbell took him aside and requested Shelby to withdraw his name, consent to, to serve himself. Shelby replied that he was himself the youngest colonel present from his state, that he had served that year, under several of the officers who were present and who might take offense if he commanded. That General McDowell, who was with them, was too slow an officer for his views and that the enterprise in which they were engaged, and added that as he ranked Campbell, yet as Campbell was the only officer from Virginia, if he, 
Shelby pressed his appointment, no one would object. Colonel Campbell felt the force of this reasoning and contented to serve and was appointed to the command as the officer of the day. <clears throat> the board of officers, all right, hold on. The force of the, the attachment was still considered insufficient to attack Ferguson as they didn't really know Ferguson's strength. It was agreed that an express be sent to invite General Morgan or General Davidson to take command. General McDowell tendered his services for this purpose and started on his mission. Before proceeding, he before proceeding far, he fell in with Colonel Williams of South Carolina, who was at the head of two to three hundred refugees. General McDowell advised them where the Patriot force was encamped. They joined the army and thus made a muster roll of about sixteen hundred men. The board of officers determined to march upon Ferguson. In the meantime, two or three of their men had deserted after their first rendezvous, and he'd gone to Ferguson and advised him of the intended attack. The army marched to Gilberttown and found that Ferguson had left it several days before, having taken the route towards Fort 96. <clears throat> All right, so after they found that out, and this was, uh, he had been alerted, by some deserters. They'd gone to Ferguson and said, hey, look, all these guys are on the, the way and they're going to catch you. And, uh, and Ferguson, of course, who, uh, who had uh, threatened to come and, and kill Shelby and, and burn the whole county, uh, decided to try and, and make a retreat. However, uh, he didn't make it. <clears throat> uh Ferguson, after marching a short distance toward 96, had filed off to the left toward Cornwallis. His pursuers never stopped until late in the afternoon where they reached the cow pens. There they halted, shot down some beeves, ate their suppers, and fed their horses. This done, the line of march was resumed and continued through the whole night amidst an excessively hard rain. In the morning, Shelby ascertained that Campbell had taken a wrong road the night and had separated from him. Men were sent off in all directions, and Campbell's corpse were found and put in the right road. All right, Ferguson, finding that he could not elude the rapid pursuit of the mounted mountaineers, had marched to King's Mountain, which he considered a strong post and which had reached which he had reached the night previous. The mountain or the ridge was a quarter mile long, and so confident was Ferguson in the strength of his position that he declared the Almighty could not drive him from it. When the Patriots came near the mountain, they halted. They tied all their loose baggage to their saddles, fastened their horses, and left them under the charge of a few men, and then prepared for an immediate attack. About 3 o'clock, the Patriot force was led to the attack in four columns. Colonel Campbell commanded the right center column, Colonel Shelby the left center, Colonel Sevier the right flank column, and Colonel Cleveland the left flank column. As they came to the foot of the mountain, the right center and right flank columns deployed to the right and the left center and left flank columns to the left, and thus surrounding the mountain, they marched up, commencing the action on all sides. <clears throat> now, remember, the King's Mountain, it's not like a, uh, it wasn't a huge mountain. Uh, the very top which they were trying to defend was only about 500 meters. That was the only flat part at the very top. Uh, the mountain itself was no more than... Uh, uh, well, approximately uh, a mile or so around. So you have the four columns uh, that had 
marched to four different locations, and they began their attack. They had first they had surrounded the mountain, and then they began attacking straight up the mountain uh, to the defenders, who were pretty much uh, closed in on top of the. Uh, it was a very narrow 500 meter uh, top, so though it was 500 meters long, it was very narrow, and uh, they had uh, Ferguson's men uh, were at the very top. <clears throat> Ferguson did all that an officer could do under the circumstances. His men, too, fought bravely. But his position, which he thought impregnable against any force the Patriots could raise, was really a disadvantage to him. The summit was bare, whilst the sides of the mountain was covered with trees. Ferguson's men were drawn up in close column on the summit, and thus presented fair marks for the mountaineers who approached them under cover of the trees. As either column would approach the summit, Ferguson would order out a charge with fixed bayonet, which was always successful because the riflemen retreated before the charging column slowly, still firing as they retired. When Ferguson's men returned to regain their position on the mountain, the Patriots would again rally and pursue them. So what they were doing was uh, every time uh, Ferguson's men would charge down the mountain, the force, uh, the Patriot force, would just fall back, shooting at them as they fell back. And then once those guys would go back up to the top, then they would close back on them. Uh, and then another section would attack from a different area. Colonel Sevier reached the summit about the same time with Shelby. <clears throat> they united and drove back the enemy to one end of the ridge. Cleveland and Campbell's columns were still pressing forward and firing as they came up. The slaughter of the enemy was great and it was evident that further resistance would be unavailing. Still, Ferguson's proud heart could not think of surrender. He swore he would never yield to such a damn banditti and rushed from his men, sword in hand, and cut away until his sword was broken and he was shot down. His men, seeing their leader fall, immediately surrendered. The British loss in killed and in prisoners was 1,105. Ferguson's morning report showed a force of 1,125. A more total defeat was not practicable. Our loss was about 40 killed. Amongst them, we had to mourn the death of Colonel Williams, the most gallant and official, efficient officer. The battle lasted one hour. All right, so there it is. Ferguson swore that uh, he would invade across the mountains. He would kill Shelby and burn the whole county. And uh, and that didn't happen, obviously, and since <clears throat> Ferguson's forces and the uh, his loyalist forces there were one-third one of the invading columns, then the Patriot forces had destroyed, not just uh, defeated in battle, they had completely destroyed, they'd either killed or taken prisoner the whole force, the whole, the whole third column, uh, that was invading in uh, North Carolina. <clears throat> the defeat could not have been uh, any worse than it was, and everybody heard about this. So what you have is you have a group of, uh, you have now the folks in North Carolina, and here's what they're going, going to hear is that the Loyalist forces were not just defeated by the Patriots, the whole force was killed and captured to a man. And what that does 
is that destroys the ability of uh, the loyalist forces to recruit or or even to fight effectively afterwards. And uh, the defeat at King's Mountain uh, was a huge setback uh, for the British. Now, uh, I'm just going to read you just a few sentences at the very end here of... uh, Of the of another letter, he's talking about after the event, after the end of the battle. Uh, this was written by a young fellow in his first battle. He said, "We proceeded to bury the dead, but it was badly done. They were thrown into convenient piles and covered with old logs, the bark of old trees and rocks. Yet not so as to secure them from becoming a prey to the beasts of the forest or the vultures of the air. And the wolves became so plenty." that it was dangerous for anyone to be out at night for several miles around. Also, the hogs in the neighborhood gathered into the place to devour the flesh of men, inasmuch as numbers chose to live on little meat rather than eat their hogs, though they were very fat. Half of the dogs in the country were said to be mad and were put to death. I saw myself in passing the place a few weeks after, all parts of the human frame lying scattered in every direction. So here's what they were saying. There were so many dead at King's Mountain that people, it was not even safe for people to go outside at night because of the wolves that had been drawn to the area, that the hogs, and remember the hogs weren't, uh, they didn't have fences and stuff back then. The hogs were, uh, they were left to roam free and look for their own stuff, and they knew where to come home to, where their home uh, base was, and where they were going to be fed. They were left to roam free and come back there. The hogs were going and eating the dead bodies, and... He said half of the uh, the dogs had been shot because they feared they were mad, and that's not the real reason. The real reason is that the people were shooting their dogs because they knew the dogs had been over eating the remains of the dead at King's Mountain. <clears throat> All right, uh, and the stuff that I just read to you guys is from The Spirit of 76. Uh, by uh, Henry Steele and Richard Morris. They edited these letters, and it's uh, put out by Castle Books. The Spirit of 76. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed the show tonight. Uh, Please uh, remember that it's everyone's duty to continue to promote and uh, push these events. And uh, thanks to everybody who was listening tonight, and uh, look forward seeing you again uh, next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central Time. All right. uh, Thank you, guys, and uh, good night. We'll see you uh, next
Me up and do 